Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the Trunk Call. I'm Divya, and I'm Akarsh. Yeah, we've been meaning to get to recording this episode uh, sooner, but as we all can imagine, I think uh, if we've lived at the intersection, if you like us, live at the intersection of uh, the news uh, in both India and the US and now Canada, uh, it's been a bit of a whirlwind of. time especially the last few weeks because the news has just been so morbid and uh, we're only coming to terms with uh, that layer of complexity uh, while also managing uh, UK's upcoming transition to Canada which by the way has an official date to it so there's a uh, he's going to be here by later part of July and I'm really excited that we will finally get to see each other and that uh, this long distance finally has some specifics around it are you excited well, to with me uk yeah except that i will still have to self isolate for 2 weeks before <laughs> i can actually be with you yeah i understand that but you shouldn't ever say that i'm excited but like it shouldn't come with a condition you should just be like excited and like seven exclamation points should follow after that so wrong answer Mm. Okay. Anyway, we've we it's been it's been interesting uh living through the last couple of weeks uh while also on uh, navigating the equivalent of uh an estate sale as uh, virtually as possible where uh we are selling off uh, or rather we're in the process of selling off some of our um physical possessions uh, uh furniture, car etc in the US and glad to say that we are almost uh they like we've almost reached the finish line on that particular project yeah. um yeah it's been so relieving uh <laughs> uh it's yeah it's it's crazy doing these things in general and then your new normal only complicates it uh and which is which is also the topic we want to get into today uh because while we've been arranging those uh sales and transactions which uh which have primarily been digital but i mean the eventual exchange happens physically because we're not shipping anything so it's only pick up focused uh in terms of the items so we've had to set up the ground rules for those in person interactions ourselves so the payments of course are 100% digital and the meetups are a little more distanced and we've been requesting our buyers to come wearing masks and uh, not very happy to report that there is uh, there those are those usually come with mixed results and uh, it it's frustrating to actually have uh, those uh, those meetups after requesting people to do the do their part of the diligence while we are doing that and not kind of meeting uh, us halfway on those expectations is frustrating but at the same time i think we understand that overall we're all in this coronavirus uh, fatigue right now where we feel that uh putting in that extra level of vigilance when it comes to precautions um is just not yielding as much uh benefit or even if it is then we've reached a point where the economy has opened up uh, essential businesses well the second level of essential businesses have opened up so people don't really think that their uh, vigilance is going to serve any additional um uh, use which is why i think everybody is taking it a little easy in terms of uh starting to meet up and not wear masks so we'll get into our uh, you know our own personal uh, experiences of what that has been since we stepped out of our house and what that felt like i'm sure you all have your own experiences as well but i personally can't wait to sort of 
cool down on my paranoia to disinfect everything only because I stepped out. I mean, UK, you know me, I've lived and sworn by the five second rule. Um, so I basically think that a French fry is sitting out on, on the floor for less than five <laughs> seconds. I will definitely eat it. Unfortunately, Disgusting. I haven't been able to use Well, you can't judge me for it anymore. You knew it when we started <laughs> Okay, so don't act like you're blindsided by this. But yeah, unfortunately, whether we like it or not, um, we're not off the hook yet. And um, if isolating at home was essentially the first major test we had to pass about three months ago, which started three months ago, living consciously through the new normal would be the second uh, test that we have to pass. And it's going to be a more difficult test uh, to pass. Would you Would you agree with that, Utkarsh? Yeah, yeah, more or less. I mean, social norms and all have changed ever since the lockdown lifted, or at least they should have. I think, I think we're in a very weird state of phase in this whole post-COVID, well, continued COVID era is mm-hmm. um, what I'm seeing, at least uh, I can I can speak to my experience out here, which is, um, I don't know, there's been this feeling of like intangible outcomes to all our sacrifices that we've made over the last three months through the lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And now that the lockdown has lifted, uh, I'm, I'm seeing that people aren't doing the necessary things because they somehow feel like the lockdown's lifted. That means the threat is over. Yep. Um, and I, I, I guess part of it comes from the fact that uh, in this article that you had shared with me by Fast Company about the quarantine fatigue, and mm-hmm. I guess it's true that in general, public adherence to safety guidelines are less impactful in its implementation right now. And I, I, I see like that's probably true for two reasons. First is, again, I think the net benefit for an individual to follow these rules against an invisible threat are zero. <laughs> yeah. Like you're, you're really not getting a, a direct response, a direct t- tangible response, even though technically it is your life, but you're still not getting that pat on the back for following those rules. So I think that's one big aspect of why people are now a little more lax towards their approach to social distancing and other norms. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The second aspect is that we are obviously slow to habitual change, right? Like it takes a while for us to accept new norms and make it a habit and and move forward with taking those things as a way of life. I think we were just getting used to the idea of continuing to isolate at home in spite right. of the frustrations. But I think we, we were finally figuring how to cope with those frustrations. And then now that we're back out in the open, we have to readjust to this new way of being. And Mm -hmm. if there was any habits that we formed or any routine that we created to suit our isolation lives has had to go undergo change once again, uh, pretty much quickly uh, to readapt. And it's the, yeah, that's interesting. No, that's, that's a good thing to think about because uh, it's true. Like for three months, we were, like good kids following every rule possible, 
to self-isolate and just be inside and not expose ourselves or others to uh, hmm. to any danger. Uh, I think right now, like I said, habit changing your habits is hard, and people are not taking this seriously for whatever reason that may be. I think the whole topic of precautions has been heavily pol- politicized. Mm, yeah. um, and I see like people falling in two camps and it's so unfortunate that we have camps on this topic as well, but we have two camps right now. Uh, first is the crowd that I think we fall in and I'm pretty sure most of our listeners fall in too, which is being diligent and being strict in our approach to distancing and other preventive measures. And then there's the, the other camp that we all are also aware of, which is they see these rules as a threat to their freedoms and they have been actively revolting against it. Mm. This is, and and unfortunately, this has also given rise to a subset of individuals in this group that are treating the end of the lockdown as the end of the pandemic. Yeah, I, I think that is uh, oversimplifying it a little bit also by, you know, putting people in two separate uh, boxes of thinking, which... I, I can see why and how that is unfolding. And I have my own sort of anecdotal experiences of what's happening out here as well. Um, people falling into one or two of those behaviors. Uh, but I, I agree with the fact that uh, there is that, you know, giving up of your personal freedom when it comes to exercising those precautions. And I think uh, we've, when you talk about giving up your freedoms, we've essentially given up our freedom from the time the quarantine began. But in order for us to sustain the precautions uh, outside the quarantine in a new normal life, there is still an upfront cost of, you know, uh, giving up how you know how to live outside uh, while also allocating your time and productivity towards constant uh, hygiene measures. You know, it just it eats away into the time that you can allocate to some other tasks in your day to you just making sure that, okay, I've just stepped out. Uh, and I've come back and it's a very small errand that I ran. But guess what? I, I touched the door at the mall or or at the, at the store. And then I came back and I touched my doorknob. And I think you're, you're, you're essentially um, contact tracing your own steps to make sure that there is no loose ends and that you have to like um, disinfect all points of contact, which I think we were a little off the hook for when we were isolated because all we had to do was we just had to make sure that we're in the house, we're making we're taking those precautions in the confines of our house. And now that we're stepping out, we can't really let our guard loose when we come back in because every time we go out, there is there is a certain level of threat we're bringing back into the house. And I think that is going to be a lot more challenging from a productivity and a time perspective. I it's it's been definitely one of the things that I've observed since I um, started to sort of step out. And uh, the the other sort of the the other more core observation here is how, um, you know, when we went into the isolation or the quarantine mode, there was some sort of a uh, synchronicity in terms of government directives uh, where it was mandated for everybody, unless you were an essential worker, that you have to stay home. So stay home was this one rally cry that we knew we had to do. Unfortunately, as we navigate, uh, we navigate our lives into this new normal, there isn't like one common directive that has been put out by governments where taking precautions has become somewhat of a subjective decision. And because it is a subjective decision, uh, 
it is automatically going to affect all of the populations. So even if you are, you know, you fall into that behavior where you do take uh, the same level of precautions that you were taking when you were quarantining and, you know, you're washing your hands, you're keeping your two meters distance, you're wearing a mask, you could still be at risk because there is always going to be somebody who is not doing that. And so it it feels a bit uh, counterproductive that there is going to be this inequality in following those precautions through uh, through this new normal. Right. Um, I'd say like your first point and your second point are so closely intertwined that uh, I find it hard to differentiate because you're absolutely right that when we are going out, we have to be extra aware of our movement, our interactions, our point of contact with people, because you are always like thinking about this invisible threat and it's always in the back of your head and sometimes it can hamper your way of approaching spaces, public spaces, uh, or, or the things that you're doing. Uh, yeah. But I have to ask you, like, why do you think that is? That is, uh, and let me answer that for you, is that is there because people are not following those precautions. If people were following those precautions, you would be statistically 70% safer in every space. So the reason why you're directly impacted by this situation right now is because others are putting you at direct risk. That's the issue. That is where yeah. I feel like uh, my interactions, at least in Arizona, have been exactly to that effect. Like I can count on two fingers right now the number of people I've interacted with over the last month or so who actually were wearing masks. Everyone else is mm -hmm. not wearing masks, not following any social distancing uh, measures, literally going about business as usual. So yeah, right. it's hard being out there. Probably and being the, the person that can. I, yeah. 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 And and also probably the reason why I haven't been going out, even though the lockdowns lifted. Mm. What's also funny and annoying at the same time is that at a time when people are doing the most to, to reduce their point of contact, at least the people who are taking this seriously, they're also trying to reduce their point of contact with people in public. I, on the other hand, have seen a sharp spike <laughs> in my personal interactions with people compared mm. to the pre-COVID times, even compared to the pre-COVID times. I was not interacting with as many people on a weekly basis as I am right now, whether it, it's to meet people to sell the furniture or to get the car detailed before selling it off or mm. uh, having to go to the bank which I haven't done in three years and I've had to do it last yeah, week. Yeah, we barely to go, go to, to the, the bank. bank anymore. Yeah. And I, yeah, that's yeah. what I was going to say. I think, I, yeah, I think that is contextual to our situation where we have to have those interactions right now because of, uh, you know, a country, like an inter-country transition. Uh, but if we didn't have that uh, obligation to fulfill, we wouldn't put ourselves out there um, so obviously in the, in the hands of risk. Uh, Mm. So th I, I think that's, you know, while that might be our specific uh, problem, but I know that in general, everybody is kind of in this conundrum of here's my practical side of living. Here's what I need to do. Uh, but at the same time, I have to be, uh, you know, take extreme precautions to make sure that I'm safe. And uh, at the same time, uh, make sure that everybody I come in touch with is safe, but I also can't stop living. I still have to do what I have to do. Right. right. And, and I think, you know, to your earlier point, I, I agree with you. I think it is that um, inequality of uh, responsibility in shouldering precautions uh, when you're in social spaces. 
it it becomes like uh, the person who's or the people who are consciously making those efforts kind of are emboldened in a way to do more because there is there are yeah. people that are not following it to the same extent and so yeah. you you feel like in spite of putting that that extent of effort you're really not going to protect yourself any further because there are people who will go and negate that effort that you just put See, and so that can be very discouraging from uh, you know that can be very discouraging from a behavior, behavioral perspective and we know that there right. is enough evidence and enough studies done in the past uh, especially like you know studies around habit formation that point to the fact that if uh, in general we become lackadaisical or stop taking care of something uh you know especially like if you know essentially when things start looking better you stop taking care of it because it's already looking better so you don't have to put in that effort it's a little it's a little ironical so for us right. i think for uh, you know the the indicators of uh, places opening up restaurants and patios opening up uh, stores becoming more again more often in shopping like an in person shopping experience those are visual examples that essentially indicate that things are looking better whereas no the pandemic still exists if there's one thing i hope people understand now more than ever is that the onus of public safety and precautions is not on the essential workers anymore we all shoulder that responsibility we all have the responsibility when we're going in public and interacting and just being out there in the open because the risk still exists and yeah. you're seeing in arizona i i was joking about this the other day but i can truly say that i feel the pandemic has now reached arizona and after the lockdowns lifted like cases out here are mm. spiking like cases out were spiking in new york 3 months back so arizona seeing that spike now and it's it's purely because people are not taking it seriously people are thinking that the things over and we can just go about our lives as usual but tell me something do you and and this could just be an anecdotal reference we're not journalists reporting on covid news so this is purely from a personal place but you can tell me did you feel that at any time arizona did take uh, the coronavirus seriously yes yes pre lockdown i think the cases in arizona at least uh, pre lockdown were minuscule compared to the entire country um and then when the lockdown happened I think people were very diligent about their approach to everything including being out in public. Yes, mm-hmm. I still saw people who were roaming around. Like you'll always have those people who just don't give a damn. They're like I want to live my life and let me be. That yeah, crowd the denials. always exists everywhere. The deny denials of science. Well, yeah. But I though, though they were a lot less in number. I think once the lockdown lifted I don't know what the effect was but I think it might have been in the public messaging that even people who were following the lockdown and those precautions very very seriously I think have now sort of like like are in that mindset that oh things are fine um and that's why Arizona seeing a huge spike now um that it didn't see before the lockdown was implemented hmm it's it's uh, it's weird because i'm actually um we're in toronto uh, ontario in general we're uh, seeing a very positive but opposite trend uh at this point uh, on this day of recording 
uh, Toronto has recorded uh, 14 consistent days of cases declining, and the recovery mm-hmm. rate is above 85%, which is amazing. Um, I, I would say that is some tangible benefit to uh, the quarantine that you've been in, and I think that's a very able to take some confidence in. But I'm also seeing that uh, so the uh, well, the Canadian, the Ontarian. Uh, Premier uh, Doug Ford hasn't mandated masks uh, hmm. yet, and uh, it seems as though, uh, given last week's news, that he has no intent of doing that. I mean, it's optional; you're free to wear it. Nobody's going to tell you if you go in with a mask somewhere to not wear it. And um, he's uh, he's kind of left it to uh, public, uh, you know, institutions and private institutions to decide that for themselves. And so I know that the Toronto transportation uh, has mandated masks, so you can't really get on a streetcar or a train without a mask on. Uh, but at the at the same time, uh, you know, if there are some stores which are okay with you just walking in as is, um, and then there are some stores that are not even allowing you inside if you don't wear a mask. And so it's weird because uh, it seems when I walk on the street now, it seems as though. When you see people with masks, and I'm the mask wearer, in case that was not evident, uh, when you see people with masks, it seems like some people are genuinely wanting to continue taking the same level of precaution and, and care about it um, in a certain way, uh, and that's evident through their, you know, wear of a mask. Uh, and then there are some people who've been waiting for uh, the quarantine to get over to actually uh, get back to the normal as they knew it before the pandemic. So for them. The new normal exists, um, you know, in the news, but not in their personal lives because they've just they're they've been defaulting to some of their old ways of uh, living an outdoor um, social life, and so I, it's interesting because when I when I step out and Toronto is a very liberal city, but when I step out, I actually do get looks from people judging me for wearing a mask. And I'm like, this is the opposite of what should be happening because I should be judging you for not wearing a mask. And if we know the 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 inherent truth behind wearing a mask is is more to protect people around you uh, than to really protect uh, yourself, you know. And so right. it's it's like I'm 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 doing this as a as a civic responsibility, but I don't see you meeting me halfway. What I do see right. is you judging me for doing something responsible. So it 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 kind of feels. Very strange to be at the receiving end of this. So I think I've I've now started to really dole out looks of disapproval and gentle mask policing to at least people around me or uh, uh, you know the people I live with uh, if I can. I just yeah. I'll just nudge them. I'll just nudge them saying that hey here's a you know here's this store that has really subsidized masks and you should get it because you didn't get it at all while we were in quarantine. That's understandable. We were indoors. You don't need the mask to be, you know, hanging out in your living room. But guess what? Now that we start to go out, here's masks that are available for as low as five dollars. And so we're we're at a different, uh, you know, price point uh, curve for mask availability, where masks are actually very easy to get now and subsidized. And so you have really no excuse of not getting one for yourself at this point. But yeah, I mean, is there something that you're doing to keep yourself? Safe in Arizona, given that people have all kinds of mixed reactions to uh, precautions right now. Well, I've already talked about what I'm doing is I'm not stepping out because I'm not seeing. 
people taking the situation seriously still. But before I get there, what I what I'll say is like at the time of the recording, Arizona, at least in Arizona, uh, people have been mandated to wear masks in public. This happened a couple of days back, and the funny thing is, even in the complex that I live in, uh, our management company has clearly sent emails to everyone stating that now from this day onwards, if you're meeting in groups, everyone has to wear masks. It doesn't matter whether you're hanging out by the pool or at the gym or in the clubhouse or in the lobby, you have to be wearing masks. And I, and I'm still not seeing, I'm still not seeing people taking that seriously. So what I'm actually like really intrigued by is the thought process behind people who are unwilling to wear a mask. Obviously there's this narrative on freedom that's being spread like wildfire in the US at least, where mm-hmm. somehow people see that wearing masks competes on their freedoms. I'm a little confused by that. I guess, again, going back to the point that I think there's one explanation that the sacrifice to reward ratio in this as in this particular scenario is very skewed in the sense that you're, you, you're not re- being rewarded for that particular sacrifice. Uh, when somebody wants to form new habits, you know, around something that is not visible as a threat and is constantly being called as a temporary circumstance, you mm. will probably not take it very seriously. And I think that's, yeah, that's one yeah. mindset. And let's not forget about the fact that there is also in the, in most Western countries or first world countries, there's always been that stigma around wearing masks from the fact that the people here have only seen folks in Southeast Asia or elsewhere wear masks and have associated it with backwardness or just circumstantial to undeveloped states. So whatever that may, whatever, I don't know if it's the first or the second or the combination of both uh, mindsets, the fact that wearing a mask can bring about more freedom and movement seems to be completely lost on this crowd. And I'm, I'm really intrigued by that thought process. Yeah, I think the whole idea of this being uh, correlated with uh, a clampdown on freedom also is, uh, in my in my sense, very politicized because America and freedom kind of go hand in hand. It's a quintessential American quality. People value part of the American dream is having a, a sense of personal freedom that no other country can provide, right? And so America mm-hmm. knows that. America is extremely proud of that. And so when you, when you correlate this, uh, you know, this particular step you need to take and that threatens your freedom, and I don't know how that kind of has come about to be. I'm sure that it's, uh, whatever it is, you know, I don't know if it's propaganda or, or, or it's just, you know, street speak or what, but, uh, it, it, it seems to me like it, it threatens a very quintessential American uh, value. So I can see why people, suddenly uh think of it uh think of it so seriously whereas honestly i just i really haven't noticed as much of a life changing difference for me uh you know when i when i wear a mask and i go out so i don't know why the the extreme resistance uh to doing that what i have noticed is that there is some amount of um loss in nonverbal communication that I usually engage in that's taken a hit because literally half my face is covered. So all people can see is my dark circles and my eyes. Right. And it's very hard to uh, gauge the, not that we need to like constantly talk with each other on the street. No, I think a lot of our street street communication is nonverbal. 
and it's non-verbal to an extent where you actually understand the intent of a pedestrian you understand the intent of a driver simply by reading emotions and expressions and right. typically we read human you know human intent or human actions uh, or human communication by processing the face as a whole rather than focusing on individual features so there's mm-hmm. only so much i can understand from a person's eyes if i can't really see their uh, lips do anything then i i you know i've kind of lost their message a little bit so that that losing that context of communication has been very interesting for me and toronto is a very pedestrian friendly city and i particularly enjoy uh, that aspect of a city like this because again like i grew up in bombay so very pedestrian friendly again whether you agree with it or not uh but i grew up with uh, walking around a lot in the city and i i enjoy that kind of fleeting exchanges with strangers and uh, for me it it seems as though now when i wear a mask or if i don't know i'm sure people are, people might relate to this as well when i wear, when i wear a mask it seems like i look very serious right there's a certain level of uh seriousness that a mask brings and if i'm trying to you know first of all it's very hard to speak because you're muffled you sound muffled and so you're trying to interact you know you're probably in a in a cashier line trying to check out a product it's muffled so you have to take it down and then the moment you have to take it down you have to touch your face and the mask falls down to your chin and then you have to pull it back up so there's some form of contact and it makes me feel so uncomfortable but also if i don't do that and i'm not able to communicate with somebody i need to in that moment of being out then it feels like either i can protect myself or i can communicate so it comes kind of comes at a cost for me and uh, it's it's interesting how reading emotions has become a challenge when half our uh, sort of pieces are are covered and uh, you mentioned an interesting example in a different context about some of these other countries um especially gulf countries where the niqab or the hijab uh is sort of the dress code for uh the females and uh, you know uh they've become accustomed to being able to communicate with their eyes and eyebrows itself to an extent that there is like their uh, whoever they're interacting with also have have become skilled at picking up what those cues are simply for, by looking at the eyes and also uh when you look at some of these other east asian countries where um the air pollution has forced people to wear masks so people are automatically attuned to the idea of being able to communicate with each other with the masks uh, be, being on but for uh, for the western part of the world or for the north american continent wearing a mask and preserving our human connection is a very new challenge that we are uh, currently faced with are you are you sensing any kind of uh, sort of change in the way you read uh, you're communicating with uh, with people right now with a potentially a mask on yeah yeah i i have an observation i think i agree to probably 80% of what you said because that's been your experience my experience has been what's slightly what's the 20% uk now I'm i want to know it. i'm getting <laughs> to it uh my experience has been a little different again like yeah let's accept the fact that wearing a mask and being in public when you can't see somebody's full face which we use like we use a lot of points uh, uh, on somebody's facial by off somebody's facial expressions to get the intent of <laughs> their their uh, approach towards you and their uh, the nature of the conversation yeah. not happening right now right 
But what I've seen is a difference in approach of people with uh, in conversation when they're wearing masks versus when they're not wearing a mask. Uh, so I'll just elaborate a little bit on that. At least uh, with when I'm interacting with someone who's wearing a mask, uh, those conversations, those interactions, I feel have been a little more cordial, a little more tempered than someone who's not wearing a mask. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's like the visual connect that you have with the with the other person who's wearing a mask too and that somehow signifies that hey we're in this together and we're taking it seriously approach so there's a little more yeah. patience towards the conversation on the other hand with people who are not wearing masks i've had the same experience that i had in my first few months in america and you know what i'm talking about there's that mm. constant what was that being posed as a question back when uh, I had landed in America, the first few months were particularly difficult interacting with anyone who wasn't willing to, like, work with you on your accent and your pronunciation. Yeah, they were they were dismissive of another English accent existing. Yeah, right. So back then, it came from, uh, like, that you were in front of this person who had a different way of enunciating and uh, pronouncing the words um, and just a difference of how you how we both spoke the same language was there right now I feel like it's coming from a difference of opinion now what do Mm. I mean by that this might be a little bit of a controversial opinion maybe but the people in the first group that I used to interact with they would not pay attention to the 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 nuance and the in the way I spoke said certain things or the way like people coming from India say certain words and things like that. But there was certainly that group who would just like, like you said, dismiss you. There would be okay. those micro aggressions that I began to understand were micro aggressions. And it, it did take me a while to catch up to the fact that I didn't need to entertain that behavior. I mean, let's be real. I was still speaking coherently and legibly in full sentences it wasn't gibberish you passed a a TOEFL exam with uh, flying colors so you clearly have language proficiency yeah sure and it wasn't gibberish but that second that that group of people really made me feel like I did I was speaking gibberish Mm. and it just didn't make any sense and I'll tell you this uh, the reason why I bring it up is I have funnily enough felt that again after so many years while interacting with people not wearing masks I'm con- constantly being asked to repeat myself or get just get dumb stares like they have no idea what I just said. And it's mindly infuriating. Um, but I see the bias in their approach. And once it hit me that that bias was playing into whether they could understand my speech or not, just because I had a mask on, I also had to check myself and make sure that I didn't overextend myself either because they aren't giving me that, that, um, what do you, what's the word like benefit of the doubt? I don't know if that's the right word. If, if you can't like extend yourself enough or meet me halfway, like you had said to understand <laughs> what I'm saying, uh, given the circumstance, then I don't think I have to do that either with you. And here's the thing. I'm not dismissing those people entirely because I'm still willing to give those folks some benefit of doubt based off the, on the fact that they might not be able to process the interactions as well since half of my face is covered. And to your point, uh, 
when you're not able to see somebody's face entirely, it can be hard. So yeah, I don't know. That's there, but I've seen that yeah. kind of like approach and uh, discrimination and interaction with people who are wearing masks versus people who aren't, and it's weird. I don't know just, if this is. I, I don't know if this is uh, an, an Arizona issue and we know that uh, Arizona is politically a conservative state. So you could have, say, um, two out of 10 or say three out of 10 experiences are a difference of opinion and hence that miscommunication or hence that uh, in a, that unwillingness to understand what the mask wearer is saying. But I also have to believe that the majority could simply just be adapting to a new way of communicating. And you have to extend the benefit of doubt. Right. Uh, right. Just from a place, just from a place of human morality where you're like, okay, we understand. And also not everybody has the same hearing abilities. So it's much harder to understand people through a muffled uh, you know, way or with a, with a filter on the mouth. So I, I, but, I understand it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's not easy. And can you imagine like, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's hard. It's, it's part of our adjustment to the new way of living. Uh, I think, I do think there is something psychological behind this because like you're saying muffled or not, if I'm talking to somebody wearing a mask, I don't know. I've not had to ask, I've not had to ask them to repeat themselves. Like I'm a, because it, it's legible. It's not like I have 10 layers of cloth in on my mouth that everything's like being acoustically absorbed. That's not the case. I think there's something more to it than just uh, the inability to be legible. And I think like that, that also tells me that maybe we need to begin relying uh, more on some other nonverbal cues like gestures or body language or just simply being a better reader right. of the physical context right. of what the message is rather than, you know, solely relying on what we can hear because it is going to be hard. But then I think once you sort of couple it with some of these other nonverbal cues, it shouldn't be really hard to uh, understand uh, interactions yeah. or ca carry on interactions in a public space while maintaining your six feet distance with a mask on. And, right. and I think that, uh, you know, that's going to require more patience. I agree with that. I think the patience deficit is something we've seen in this, uh, you know, we, we usually experience whether pandemic or not, new normal or not, the patience deficit is there and it's going to require patience on the side of the speaker and the listener to be able to be understood better in sort of... Uh, the the design of the new normal that we're living in um mm -hmm. and i think that's that's also very interesting to me because eventually i i feel like the other outcome would be that people would automatically give up on talking things that are not necessary to be conveyed you know like if it's not necessary to be uh said then i'll just hold my silence and do what i need to do or i'll stay plugged in with my earphones whether i'm like if i'm on the train or the bus or anything which anyway, we've been seeing, we've been seeing people are increasingly self-absorbed uh, in public spaces, uh, again, pandemic or not. Uh, but I feel because uh, of these precautions, uh, public spaces, in my opinion, are also going to get more quieter because it's going to be harder to communicate with the mask on and be uh, two feet, uh, sorry, six feet away. And uh, already, you know, we're, we're seeing that gathering. So places are open. But again, from a very functional perspective, you know, you need to procure this item, 
here's where you pay you pay online you just go pick it up or if you go in store then only so many people are allowed to go and until those people exit the next round of people will not be sent in and i think what is happening is in those public spaces we're essentially eliminating the uh the uh, eliminating the concept of gathering because gathering is a threat still is right and so when we eliminate gathering uh, or even reduce gathering in public spaces or private indoor spaces like restaurants and cafes my opinion or rather my prediction is that i think those places are going to become less likable especially places that are are built around social gathering you know whether you want to go get a cup of coffee uh but you're with a friend but essentially the 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 end task is not to get a cup of coffee the end task is to, is to bond with somebody and the coffee just happens to be the means to the end and and when cafes just become places of pick up or you know places with uh, staggered or limited seating or distanced spaced out seating to me or taking out the most uh, essential or the more or the or the essence of gathering from those places so i don't know i feel like they're going to become less likable or maybe we have to rewire how we see those places and think that gathering now exists out of those places so there is there is a a time and place for gathering that's outside of these places i don't know i just it's it's a question and it's still developing so i know nobody really has it has an answer to this but i know that you're an urban designer so you definitely have an opinion bubbling on this you want to jump in yeah yeah the biggest thing that we all need to keep it keep in our minds is the lockdown happened for a very specific reason and the reason was that anyone who's infected can be treated or isolated and anyone who's not infected stay indoors don't expose yourself so when it's time to come back out everyone can do that safely but with the lapse in the spread of the virus uh it has proved hard to do that right so even as the lockdown has lifted unfortunately the public spaces haven't been safe enough for you to resume life as it used to be now the difference is like in arizona that's definitely not the case but in toronto like you had mentioned i i read about this the other day that now groups of 10 are being encouraged groups of 10 people with the sub no with the subtext that they have isolated and don't have the virus can now gather at one location and spend time together that doesn't yeah. seem to be like what's happening in arizona so it's it's a very different thing it's a very different scenario scenario out here but i think that the gist of it is public spaces can only be safe when people who are supposed to be following the rules are following those and keep themselves safe it is every individual's responsibility right now to keep themselves safe and in turn that effect then multiplies over like keeping everyone else safe that's the fundamental here uh but to the point of like where we where you were going with this which is public spaces how safe they are or is that is there going to be any change like listen i don't have any specific answer to it but i do have like a whole bunch of high level overviews um so i was reading this article again something i came across on fast company's website on how the design industry my industry is looking at what the new normal is going to be like once we start coming out and this was published a couple of weeks back so obviously scenarios have changed a little bit but i i'll start with uh quoting this one interviewee who had very clearly said 
there is no way we can design ourselves out of this scenario. And I do firmly believe that. And that person's an architect and that person is 100% right. And I'll tell you why. The nature of architecture and design as an industry is such that trends typically take a generation to implement. Unlike the fashion industry where you have trends coming in every with every season. That's not typically how architecture works because it's more permanent than that. Mm-hmm. So it's a very slow moving vehicle. And that's that's trends that I'm talking about. Whereas like major shifts in the industry in practice, like like the one that this pandemic requires, well, that happens like once every few generations. So it's a long winded approach. And I mean, let's be honest, like as romantic as the ad hoc gorilla approach to design and architecture that we keep talking about looks, it's not really that feasible. So all the approach, all the, all the approaches on the ground level that you're seeing right now, whether it's, uh, the pods that you're seeing in gyms that are opening up now that are self-isolating pods that you can work out in or yeah. those physical barriers in salons that you're seeing or just the, yeah. the the circles that you're seeing on the ground now in outside grocery stores or, or even within grocery stores. Those are all temporary fixtures. They're not going to, yeah. they're not contributing to the permanent uh, solution that we need to implement in physical spaces. Now, I'll also add to that, that while all of this has been going on, at least not just in US, but the world over, we're seeing a huge social movement that's also taking shape. Mm. And I'll say that in our industry, we've been working towards trying to design for more equitable spaces for a while. It's not a new thing for us, but we still haven't figured it out. And that's, 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 I'm bringing this up because that's a direct example to how do we respond as designers to this particular issue? Well, it's going to take time. So I'll also say that it's when, when I, when I say these things, it's not like progress isn't happening. We just haven't reached the tipping point where we can truly say that we have solved that problem. Again, like I said, that's all very high level. I'll just add one more thing to that, which is when we're talking about these kind of problems, and solutions to those problems when they have to be expedited. That can only happen when there are shifts in policymaking at the governmental level and economics of it all. The government right now, unfortunately, does not incentivize building for equity in a lot of different aspects and instead really incentivizes and pushes for making a quick profit. And that dynamic itself needs to change. And I think there's there's a huge conversation happening in our industry right now where it's really a top-down approach. The government needs to push for some policies that can change the way developers develop in, in cities or develop cities uh, that incentivizes good or like good uh, doing the good for masses versus just doing good work. Those are two very separate things. Hmm. Um, and then at, at, at a local level, I would say like it's a matter of scaling certain solutions. Like we've seen solutions being scaled uh, up to like neighborhood or street level, like they're not citywide yet. So a couple of things that I'd initially mentioned, like those gym pods or those physical barriers, they're temporary fixtures, they're incremental. But I think the fundamental issue here is that all of those things, all of those so-called solutions that are being implemented right now, they are in direct conflict 
with what it means to have public spaces, what it means to be in public spaces, which is you're being again asked to self-isolate in public spaces. And that I think like kind of removes the charm of being in public spaces. And you'd, you've already mentioned this point. Yeah. And I want to, want to, I want to reinforce that we as designers, we never design spaces for isolation. In public. Exactly. <laughs> and that's, I think that's exactly what I was, uh, you know, trying to get at as well, saying that um, I think these all of these measures that are put into uh, indoor spaces or public spaces right now, whether it is plexiglass dividers or it's sanitation uh, stations or whatever that is, those are essentially retrofitting your precautionary measures into a place that was essentially designed for gathering, into a right. place that was essentially right. designed for uh, congregating and, uh, you know, just fostering a community essentially. And, and those, uh, options, uh, while, you know, the pandemic has created a design emergency also, um, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you can so, attest to that. And, and I think in terms of the long-term solutions, it is going to be, um, uh, as not, maybe not as long, long and painstaking as creating a vaccine is, but it also has its own journey of, uh, economic influences, regulatory influences, and eventually has to be uh, also designed for an outcome, for a global outcome that we know is here to stay or that can recur in the next couple of years. But currently, currently the the design evolution that we've seen that has happened overnight is to just make sure that we're able to manage this pandemic. So uh, without getting into the very technical speak of things, Utkarsh, answer this for me. How is it that urban designers or, uh, you know, uh, city design practitioners approach or rather research and plan for solutions in the, in the long term by potentially collaborating with other uh, experts from other fields uh, by uh, just preempting threat uh, or preempting uh, potential problems and creating design solutions that will actually last uh, long term. The the kind of those long-term solutions that you're asking for, they're not happening right now. And they, they, I think it's going to take a while for us to, uh, for, for us to really get a grip on what the solutions are. So you're not going to see major shifts in urban spaces in the next two years. I don't think that's happening because again, it comes with a huge capital cost. Changing the way public spaces are designed is one thing. Retrofitting public spaces to now be something else is a is a much larger task because you already have something that the government has put in a lot of money behind and they might not be like as willing to change the status quo for those things so yeah if you're talking about new spaces that come up and new buildings that are coming up i think there's going to be a huge task uh, for us to now take these things into consideration when we're designing new spaces but for the existing ones, it's really hard. So there's a couple of like immediate solutions that I think architects and designers will now start implementing at the building scale. One of them being a system like air filtration. There's been extensive yeah. studies in the last six months alone that has been done on how air, how the virus uh, uh spreads through air and how much air filtration and airflow can impact how this virus is spreading within an enclosed space. This is already being studied for airline industry because airline industry relies heavily on air filtration and air recirculation. Buildings are built the same way, more or less. Buildings require on air circulation and recirculation. And what we're seeing right now is air circulation can be one of the biggest culprits for spreading the virus very quickly within an enclosed space. So I think 
there's that particular aspect on the engineering side where you come up with better air filtration systems, you can potentially solve for this problem in enclosed spaces. The other thing would be the ability to move through spaces without the need to touch surfaces. Yeah. Right? That's a big thing. Right now, every time we go out, we have at least 30 to 40 different points of contact between a door-to-door journey. Now, if you were to think about the spread of virus through those surfaces, you have to really come up with solutions where you can minimize those contacts as much as possible. The thing is that these solutions already exist for us. There's through motion sensors, through gesture control. You can do, you can do a lot very quickly to solve for that particular problem. But again, when I say these, these are solutions, these are just band-aid on the wound. I'm no way, in no way implying that these are long-term solutions that'll help. They can mitigate, but they're not going to solve. I think that's, that's the, the, the footnote here for me. So finally, I'll add uh, to all of this by saying that there's a big quotient of sustainability in the built environment that is being paid close attention to now more than ever. Whether it's use of energy in buildings, which tends to be at least one of the highest contributors to global warming, or better sourcing of materials for buildings, because there's a lot of unsustainable practices in supply chains of for manufacturing and transport of these materials. But all of this also extends to leading a sustainable life, lifestyle in our personal lives as well. To be precise, a more self-reliant lifestyle. I'm not going to make a joke about this, but it's so tongue-in-cheek, like the whole Atman Nirbhar thing that's happening in India right now. Oh if, you, if you put... Are you really on, making on, this on, reductive? Hold on, hold on. If you put it with the right guardrails and the right principles in place, that is a very good thing to consider. There's a lot to be said about how cities are currently designed for you to rely on a lot of systems. And those systems, whether it's from transport to utilities, they all play a huge role in how we lead like our, our, our lifestyles. Okay. And right now what we've seen is there's a huge shift in how those lifestyles are being impacted because those systems are being impacted. So for the longest time, at least in our industry, there's been a conversation about how do you sustain a life, your life and have a good lifestyle without losing out on things, but do all of that within a one mile radius. And you can do that only if you rely less on cars if you rely less on systems that are built to promote a lot of unsustainable unsustainable ways of living. So again, not to convolute the point here too much, but I think as we move forward, you're going to see a lot more localized solutions that are being implemented over cities and even countries that promote a sense of a little more of self-reliance and little less on relying like not to make a case against globalization, but relying less on something that's being supplied by another country that now you can't have because of some natural calamity or some pandemic. Because also let's keep in mind that this is not the first pandemic. This is not going to be the last pandemic. And we're seeing with every passing year, the threats of climate change taking a more physical form. So to cut a long story short, I'm just saying that in the future, from our industry, I do firmly believe from governmental policies, from 
economic guidelines and rules being more strictly implemented, you, I think you're going to see more localized solutions to these problems because at the end of the day, relying on those localized solutions is the way I see us getting out of this without changing drastically the way we've been living our lives for so long. I guess the challenge for, uh, you know, designers and for um, people of uh, people who manage and run public spaces and uh, private spaces is is that there will have to be a continued sense of revising the setup uh, and the design of the place to make sure that the risk of transmission is reduced as the pandemic continues to evolve. Um, and so while we may have the solutions that we have right now um, in terms of uh, the, the dividers and the sanitizers and all, uh, it, it could potentially look a lot more complicated as the pandemic advances, or it could possibly be notched down and we will get to see this, the face of these uh, public spaces as we've known them in their original form. But regardless, I feel given that we, we're just inching out of the quarantine uh, period right now and we've only begun getting into the new normal for the last week and a half, there is going to be an evidence straddling between the virtual and the real until getting back to the real is completely safe. And this is going to be our way of life, given, given the most conservative projections of when a vaccine can realistically be uh, approved and scaled out to populations. We are at least a year to two years away from that outcome happening. So we, I feel the new normal is, is soon going to just become the normal uh, without the new. And uh, it'll become less and less familiar as um, time progresses and we, we live through this uh, dichotomous uh, way of being. Well, I'm still holding on to the date a year from July 23rd, which is hoping is when we can go and attend that Rage Against the Machines concert. Mm, yeah, you're really holding out for that, aren't you? Yeah, I'm sure that'll happen. Yeah, a lot of, a really lot of plans so. are a lot of plans are backed up for 2021. Uh, but 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 I'm but I'm glad that we uh, we still get to do what we what we need to do and what we. Uh, want to do this year in spite of the uh, massive amount of restrictions around uh, us and uh, yeah can't can't wait for you to be here and then sort of see you put your face out <laughs> of the, the bedroom Absolutely. that you'll be isolating and all right that's it for now you guys we will catch you on episode six very soon and thank you again for tuning into the trunk call podcast take care